1: Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune podcast. I have a returning guest. It's been a while, but I'd like to welcome back Steve San Angelo of the SRS Rocco Report. Steve, how are you doing today?
0: Matt, it's great to be here again. Since the last time we spoke, there's been a lot of crazy things happening in in the broader markets and in the silver market. We had the short squeeze and we're continuing to see a lot of interest in silver. So there's, there's plenty to talk about
1: yeah absolutely. and And I want to preface you know this discussion, interview, whatever you want to call it for for my listeners, I want to preface this by saying that that Steve and I are going to start off this conversation on the topic of of silver, specifically a lot of the current events that we're seeing right now, the interest in the silver market, the demand in the silver market, et cetera. But we're going to move beyond that later on in this discussion to to some other really, Interesting and, and big picture items that that I would really appreciate each of you sticking around for, not just because I want you to listen to my work. I mean, sure, there's that, too. But 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 honestly, this is big picture stuff that that plays into a big part of why Steve and I are both, you know, so big on precious precious metals, big on silver, big on gold. Um, some some things that are going to to influence your life and my life far more than. You know the return that we find on on our investments. So, with that being said, I do want to start off with silver here, and and the first thing I want to kind of talk about, the first thing I want to ask you here, Steve, is, is I want to to get sort of an update, um, update on kind of the current the current status of of silver demand. You know, both the the coin and bar demand as well as the ETF demand in the market today, and and an idea of you know what. This, this type of demand that we've seen that dates back to maybe late 2019, certainly uh, sped up in 2020, and it has really soared just in the past couple of months here. How, how does that kind of compare to, to past periods of high demand uh, for, for physical silver? Well,
0: what's interesting, we had actually more uh, physical investment uh, of silver um, leading not when the price went from like, uh, to tw- like, let's say, $9 at the bottom in 2008 to uh, 50 in 2011. And I think the I always go by the average price of the year. To me, that's the, that's the real price, is the average price, not the peaks and the troughs. So it was $35. But the, the, there was actually more demand for silver, investment silver, the, the years afterwards. For four or five years, silver investment, physical, uh, bars and coins continue to grow. Like, I believe in 2012 it was like 242 million ounces. 2013 over 300 million. Uh, to I think 2014 it was like 285. And then 2015 when silver really started to fall, it was 312 million ounces. But then when the price really started to fall in, in 16 and 17 below 20, at, at that point in time, it, then we start seeing a reduction in uh interest by investors, for silver. But it, we could see that investors remained strong for four years after the silver price peaked. And so I we're, I think we're in the same situation now due to the pandemic. And uh, last year was a record. Not only did we have, uh, we, we had 200, a little more than 200 million ounces, according to the new World Silver Survey. I thought it was a little bit more. They had first forecasted it was about 230, 240, but it was 200 million ounces. And they said it would have been more, but the shutdowns curtailed the, the, the ability for the mints to put out the metal. And and so they're predicting next this year it's going to go to 250 million ounces. That's, that's physical bars and coins. Now, the real winner, the real winner was ETF demand. And ETF demand, according to the World Silver Survey, was 331 million ounces. It was the highest ever. So, Matt, if you add those two together, you get about 531 million ounces. Well, for the first time ever, total investment demand surpassed industrial demand. It's it's never done that. Uh, And my first charts that I put out, it was a little bit higher. But uh, again, they they revised it lower. And so when you say industrial demand was about 490 million ounces last year and investment demand was 530, uh, that put a pinch on on the market. uh, And so that's why we saw the price move up. But if we go back over the last couple last 15 years, total physical silver and ETF demand on average is a little bit more than half than industrial demand. So we're talking, you know, 250, 300 million ounces of total silver investment for the year. And industrial demand is about 450 to 500 plus million ounces. So that, and so I think we, we've seen a a, a big trend change, um, uh, I I think already, and we could talk about this uh, already in the first four months of the year, we see that the ETFs have 72 million ounces of silver. That's the net right now. Since the beginning of the year, after the iShares had liquidated its silver from its high to its low. And I I, I find that very suspect. But as you know, the Sprott PSLV is is continuing to increase. So right now, I believe we are setting up in a new silver market due to the pandemic, so I think we're going to continue to see strong silver investment demand.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about the the iShares SLV that that at the beginning of the uh, silver squeeze movement, you know, late January, early February, they saw a huge build in inventory, um, and and they've pretty much given up most of that. Whereas on the other hand, PSLV the the Sprot physical silver. Uh, uh, ETF has has continued to to build at a you know a pretty steady pace, which is which is music my ears. I mean, we all everyone has different thoughts and opinions on on SLV and and other similar ETFs, and and you know whether or not that silver is actually there, and and you know how do they source you know for instance you know early February how are they able to source such a large amount of silver in in a matter of, of a few days? You know, those are all questions for another conversation. But I think you and I can agree that that of these ETFs, you know, PSLV is is maybe the the most trustworthy.
0: Yeah. And because you, you're seeing uh, Sprott add so much silver. I mean, it's uh, it, here's the here's the numbers I have since the since January 1st of this year. Sprott has added 46 million ounces to the PSLV. Uh, the ETF securities, which is out of the Europe. UK and, and part of Germany, uh, that was a 13 million ounce net increase. And and, uh, and and iShares is 10 million. So the top three of the top three and iShares is the largest by far, it, you know, by order magnitude of three or four times. It, it, it has only added 10 million ounce net since the beginning of the year. And so, yes, that's the thing. But what's, what's also fascinating that I just wrote about in a new article for the Silver Members is that when I on, when I'm on Twitter, I say, okay, who's who's the biggest silver investor in the world? What country? People, it, the knee jerk reaction is China. It's not China. China is actually one of the smallest. They they invest in gold for some reason. China does the Chinese people. I'm not saying the government, but the Chinese people do not acquire a lot of silver. They acquire gold. Who acquires a lot of silver? Are the Indians. Typically, they do, but they, they really cut back last year due to uh, the high price, also the pandemic, because it hit them in the part of the summer. So they, it, silver investment in India in the second half of the year was almost nothing compared to what it normally is. But the leading silver investors are the Americans, Americans invested 78 million ounces of silver last year. The second place was Germany at 42 million, followed by India, get this, 9 million ounces. The year before, India invested 53 million ounces in silver. So that was that was an 85% drop. So can you imagine if India had been acquiring silver last year? This would have been uh, even a much more di- interesting uh, market. So... Uh, and lastly over the past 10 years let's say 11 2010 to 2020 who has been the largest silver investor America United States over a billion ounces and second place is India at 623 million ounces followed by Germany 310 and so this is those are the, the three biggest investors Germany has really come up and i think the they're a new generation, of course, compared to the Weimar Germany hyperinflation that took place in the early 20s. But when you could see Germany invest uh, 42 million ounces in silver and they have to pay that fat tax, they realize that the problems with currencies are just going to continue to get worse. So I, I found that to be a very interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah, no, no Brian. I'll be honest. I was entirely unaware of that in regards to Germany, but it, but it makes perfect sense because you know, understanding the dynamics of the euro and the eurozone, um, Germany has has essentially always carried more than their weight in terms of of um, economic output, and and have certainly, uh, you know, with the with the what amounts to basically, you know, monetary policy that was that has been bailing out many of these these less prosperous, um, more indebted countries, uh, including you know Italy, including uh, uh, Greece and, and others, um, they uh, they're really on the other side of that, and so it is not surprising. that Not only do they maybe have some more economic prosperity, which could you know maybe offer them the chance to buy more more silver, but also they see the writings on the wall for the euro. Um, and 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 they're going to do you know what they can to to protect their wealth and and you know in regards to what you're talking about with India that's it, it certainly sounds counterintuitive and I think you're right in saying that that part of that is is COVID you know uh, um, India is certainly getting hit very hard right now in terms of cases and deaths and whatnot but but even in terms of economic disruption in in 2020 um, there's no doubt that they that they suffered quite a bit. Uh, even just on that side, never mind the, the effects of the actual disease. And the other, the other piece of it though, is, is that, you know, in, let's say again, over the last 10 years, 2010 to 2020, oftentimes, you know, it's been the Americans, you know, there's exceptions. I mean, Americans were very big into, to silver investment demand. Like you said, in years like 2015, 2016, when the price really wasn't doing a whole lot other than going down, you know, India, has always, it seems to be the, the you know, the buyer when the price is falling or when the price is, you know, those times where we've seen silver drop, you know, sub 17, some $16 an ounce. Um, oftentimes it's those time periods that we see, so, uh, we see India um, kind of pick up the slack in terms of demand.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think it was 15. I'm not quite sure. I, I have to, India imported eight, over 8,000 metric tons of silver uh, several years ago. That was it was 8,300, something like that. that. That's the number I get. That's like 260 million ounces they imported. So it goes to show you how much they can be purchasing. So right now, and I just saw that in April, they're forecasting that uh, Indian gasoline demand in April, due to this spike in, in their COVID cases and deaths, unfortunately, it's 20% down in in gasoline consumption that's that's a big number and so you're not seeing that in other countries and and, and so i think even though india has been buying a lot of gold we could we have we don't have the new data for uh january of this year so it's going to be interesting to see uh what what their monthly imports are going to be in, in the first quarter of the year and onwards but i think they're going to be very much impacted uh, in, in the second quarter. But be, besides that, I think one of the more interesting dynamics too that people don't get how much US uh, Americans are buying silver, get this, last year according to the uh, World Super Survey, uh, the Canadian Royal Mint produced 33 million ounces of, of, of coins and also they sell bars. The Canadian Mint sells bars, uh, either the 10 ounce and the 100 ounce bars. The U.S. Mint does not do that. They just sell the Silver Eagles. So, unfortunately, the, the Royal Canadian Mint is no longer publishing how many Royal, uh, how many Silver Maples they're they're making. They they just lump it all together. But get this: 33 million ounces that they manufactured last year, and Canadian investment was only 8 million ounces. Where do you think it's all going? Who do you think's buying all those Canadian maples? It's not it's not Canadians. It's mostly American citizens that are buying those Canadian maples. I found that you know, I've known that in the past but last this year or well, last year I thought we would see more buying by Canada, not much. So it's again Americans are soaking up most of the silver eagles. And they're soaking up most of the uh, silver maples, and they're soaking up silver Krugerands and, and Britannia's and Austrian uh, Phil, the Austrian Philharmonics, and so on and so on and so on. So we are the US is the biggest investor of coins, silver coins in the world by far. In India, where they buy silver, they buy bars.
1: Yeah, you know you. So, so all of those coins that you brought up for the most part, you know, if you're talking about um, Philharmonics, if you're talking about um, um, Maples or, or a lot of the products out of, out of the Perth Mint uh, they, they all, what they all have in common is that generally speaking and, and under, you know, quote unquote, normal circumstances, they're going to have a much lower premium than, than American Eagles. Now some, you know, some Perth Mint products, certainly some, uh, Royal Canadian mint products are going to have a higher premium, but most tend to be lower premium. And 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 I wonder, you know, if you look at the US mint sales uh, year to date, they're certainly encouraging, you know, we can kind of, to some extent, you know, uh, exclude January. January is always usually a good month in, in terms of sales. Um they're not maybe quite as high as one would expect. And I wonder how much of that is kind of substitution, right? <laughs> maybe, you know, consumers are, you know, taking a page out of out of kind of the US and, and their um, you know, the, the Bureau of Labor statistics and, and their calculations of, of inflation, and whatnot. We're substituting one for another that we're going for bars, generic silver, or or foreign mints that are gonna be lower premium than than American silver eagles because they do tend to be in such a high demand and their premiums have been, you know Fairly hefty compared to what a lot of investors, you know, were used to for for a half a decade at least.
0: Well, Matt, I, I talked to uh, a few dealers, and what this is what's interesting: the silver eagles are now the premiums are over ten dollars. They're ten, eleven, twelve dollars, and and that's based on buying about a hundred coins. You get a little bit better. You can get less than that if you're buying five hundred, but that's what it is. Now, most of the large dealers. Are charging upwards of eight dollars for a Canadian silver maple. So the maples used to be two or three dollars, and the and the eagles were four, or five, or six. Now the eagles are over ten, or eleven, and the, and the maples are now seven, eight. So we've seen that it's it's pushed them all up, and the other ones are are less, uh, but. I think the issue is also that the U.S. Mint is switching over to the new design for the U.S. Eagle and the Silver Eagle. This brand new design, and I've been talking to a a few dealers and a wholesaler, and it seems as if that they're they're selling they've sold out of the old. There there's some left of the old design, but they're going to be bringing in the new design, and I think that's why we're not seeing. I think it's a little more than a million ounces of Silver Eagle sold in April. I thought we would see three or four million. I think this is the issue they're switching over to a whole new a whole new uh design so I think once that happens we're going to continue to see a pretty h- strong demand for silver eagles even though again even though you're paying 10 11 dollar premiums it, it it's it's quite amazing
1: oh yeah we've even seen the the pr- the premiums on on generic Silver. over um you know, far higher than it's been. And, and, and again, you know, probably in over a, you know, we're talking almost a decade since it's probably been this high in terms of premiums, you know, you know, we started off this conversation talking about demand, looking back, looking back to um, you know, you start all well, the way back to 2008, you know, back to 2010. And, and you kind of start off by saying that, you know, even after the, the peak in 2011 investment demand in silver was maintained for for a full five years, very high levels, even though the price had been falling all the while. Um, looking forward, and it certainly would seem to be that that we're not somehow at a peak right now at you know twenty six dollars an ounce. But but looking forward in terms of demand, how sustainable is this? And and I want to come at this from both directions. How sustainable is this in terms of demand from? Retailers, institutional investors, and industrial users, and how sustainable is this demand um, in, in terms of you know, how, much, how much longer can the market continue to meet uh, this relatively high amount of demand?
0: You know, that, that's a good question, I, and I, I don't have the guaranteed answer. But what makes sense to me now is that after the pandemic, and this, see, we could talk about the other side of the equation, the economy. And that's good. I believe the real economy is going to start to disintegrate towards the end of this year and into next year, uh, even though the, the stock market doesn't show it. And so at that point in time, I think we're going to see even more central bank intervention. So what's happening, all the silver, all the hardcore silver investors have been investing. I started investing in silver in 2002. And so you still have them and they've been telling their family and friends. Well, now a few of the family and friends are starting to say, well, after 15 years, you're making sense. And so now they're they're starting to buy some silver. And so that's what's happening now. But but it's still a fraction of a fraction. So going forward, I think due to the issues now with, I mean, do you know how much debt was added last year in the world? Twenty three trillion dollars of debt. The year before. And this is according to the International Institute of Finance that they cover the debt. The year before 2019, it was 5 trillion and the year before it was 13. So when you add 23 trillion in one year, that, that's what it took to backstop the, the, the global economy from a collapse. But they papered it. They really haven't fixed it. And so now all these problems we're seeing with the supply chain it's, 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 there's more to it than the shortages and the issues. It, it's, it's starting to disintegrate upon itself. Now we could see a bit of a, a pull up and a reversal of that, but I think, I, I do think so. investors are going to continue to acquire silver. And I think we could see some fireworks. Um, I think that will happen in a few years, but it could happen sooner. It, it's kind of hard to predict some of the things that are happening, especially, you know, China is trying to look, they're getting more and more warlike towards Taiwan. Well, Taiwan semiconductor is one of the largest manufacturers of semiconductors. And we have a semiconductor shortage. So there's just a lot of dynamics taking place. That reminds me of the collapse of the late bronze age, which we're going to get to towards the end of this, this discussion. But Matt, I think I think we're going to see continued strong silver investment demand. And it, you know, the you know, World Silver Survey, they believe that we're going to see about 250 million ounces of physical silver investment this, this year. And I think that is a very that's a very likely number. So it's it's gonna be higher than last year.
1: Oh yeah. And and I don't I wouldn't at all be surprised that, you know, at, at the current pace, if we exceed that, you know, it really depends on. Price action, you know, the same power of, you know, the American investor, um, Wall Street silver, and and of course, uh, you know, in, in the Indians, you know, it's another big question, in the physical market, you know, you, you kind of talked about two things there that I want to put a pin in and circle back to you. you talked about the debt and kind of papering over the recession. You also brought up this, this talk about, you know, similarities between now and the late Bronze Age, but real quick, you know, staying on the topic of silver. So, so. We're talking about this demand. We're talking about how sustainable is this. Um, there's there's some now that are talking about a shortage in the silver market. You know, it's really it's it's the silver market is has far more give in terms of of supply being out there, physical supply, than let's say, uh, palladium or or rhodium or something similar to that. Um, and and so it's it's hard to say exactly when that that will occur, but. You know, from your estimation you know what's the tipping point in this for for industrial users for for car companies um, electronics manufacturers and all the other industries that that silver is is vital for what's the tipping point for them to see this see a potential shortage down the road and you know basically act accordingly start you know preemptively buying silver for future production at, at a higher rate than they would be you know, under normal circumstances. Well, it
0: is interesting that when the short squeeze took place at the end of January, beginning of February, that the Aberdeen and the iShares ETFs, they changed their prospectus. And you, you probably read about that. And so basically what they're saying is if there was another event like that, they couldn't guarantee the ability to acquire the silver. Because you see, the difference between like GameStop is when you get a whole bunch of people moving into it, either uh, on a short squeeze, which is forcing the shorts to cover, and by when they cover, they got to buy back, and that just makes it worse. There's only so many shares of GameStop. But uh, when you get a, a huge influx of buyers into the SLV, then what's happening is the SLV's price is going up higher than the spot price of silver. And that's a that they call it a premium, and it, uh, J.P. Morgan cannot allow that to happen. So what they have to do is acquire silver. So when they when when they get silver, these authorized participants get shares, and that's that's how it happens, and that's how these ETFs try to maintain that balance. So if you get a lot of investors moving into the, the iShares Silver ETF and they can't acquire the silver, then you're going to see the iShares silver price move higher than the spot price of silver. And that, you that, see, to me, that's why I don't care if retail investors move into silver, the SLV. I think it's just another, it's, it's another pressure point on the entire silver market. But when do the industrial users start to get concerned? Well, it is true. Uh, the palladium, uh, the reason why palladium has gone up is considerably, I mean it's gone up four or five times is due to its the it's industrial demand it's all industrial demand and so uh, it's been a drawdown of the above ground stocks that are in ETFs and exchanges. So even though there's a lot of silver in the ETFs and in in other in the lbma, the, there is actually kind of a tightness in the market because the 1,000 ounce wholesale bars, the premiums have gone up significantly in the last several months. So if that's, that's an indication that to get the 1,000 ounce bar, there is a tightness. When industrial users find out that the premiums on the 1,000 ounce bars really start to go up, that's when they're going to start stockpiling silver. And we have this May 1st uh, uh, Wall Street silver campaign to buy a whole bunch of silver. I'm not quite sure how effective that is going to be. But I do think when we start to see a lot of problems in the the market, more central bank propping up, more investors are going to start moving into silver. And that's physical buying, that's ETF buying, that's institutional buying, and that's going to force the industrial buyers because they're going to need that silver. And so I think when you start seeing the silver price really move, and we start getting more tightness, and the premiums for the thousand ounce bars really start to move up, that's when the industrial buyers will be coming in to make sure that they have the silver to to, to manufacture their products.
1: You know what you said there is really interesting about the thousand ounce bar market and and the rising premium. Roughly a year ago, when 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 people were finally kind of waking up to, you know, we we have a we have a global pandemic happening, and you saw this this major, I won't even call it an uptick, a huge surge in in demand for physical silver, you saw a huge rise in premiums, and you saw essentially in the retail market for for one ounce uh, coins and and retail products, you know, uh, all the way up to hundred ounce bars, you saw a shortage. And, and back then, I think, rightly so, many people basically said, look, this isn't a full-blown sh- silver shortage. This is just in the, you know, uh, basically the, the retail side, these these one-ounce to 100-ounce denominations. We're not talking full-blown silver shortage. It's just that it takes time to to uh, basically mint, you know, let's say Silver Eagles, or to, to create these bars. And... It was also happened to be during a time of, of supply chain disruption. What you're saying here is that this is far beyond just saying, well, okay, all these one ounce, 10 ounce, 100 ounce products are high in premium because they're having a hard time uh, 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 melting them down and minting them and et cetera. This is extending into the, essentially the wholesale market, not just wholesale of, of these retail products, but wholesale thousand ounce bars, COMEX bars and and others. That's pretty significant. Yes.
0: And I think it's still in its infancy. It's still, I call it phase one. I think we're going to get into three or four phases. And again, uh, to me, it's, we could look at what the the central banks are doing to continue to prop up the economy and the global, the global economic system. But then there's the energy in the background and the energy in the background is going to get into trouble. And if the energy gets into the trouble, then the central banks lose control because you can print money and do all these things if oil production and consumption increases you can get away with it you can the lie you can do the lie but if energy production and consumption really starts to fall then it's it pulls the curtain from the wizard of oz you see he's not a big guy on a screen it's a, it's a little chubby guy you know, behind the screen, sitting there with a microphone. And so that's the issue. That's the real issue that, uh, to me, that's the the dynamic of the silver market. That's when people start to wake up about silver is when they understand a lot of these assets that are based upon energy growth are going to be in trouble. There's not many good assets, gold and silver, to hold your, protect your will. So I think that just gets better over time. And so when you get central bank money printing, that it's, it's just going to compound the issue on the wholesale and the retail market.
1: So let's talk about that in, in this, uh, whether it's a precious metal space or sort of this macroeconomics, um, alternative financial media, whatever you want to call it, kind of space. There's a, there's a lot of talk and rightfully so about debt. You know, exponentially higher debt, ex- exponentially more monetary stimulus, call it what you want, monetization of debt, money printing, et cetera. Uh, it, and it all essentially amounts to kicking the can down the road. We're going to try and create a never-ending uh, uh, credit cycle to to basically make ourselves recession-proof, right? I mean, if, if you were to sum up kind of this this idea behind what central banks and what governments have done over the last um you know, maybe two decades, maybe you can you can certainly date it back further than that, I'm sure. However, while that's all true, that, that that is a big part of it, kicking the can on the road in terms of this credit cycle and whatnot, that's that's just part of the picture, right? There, there's a bigger picture here, and it relates to energy. Could, could you kind of give my viewers, my listeners kind of an idea of, of what I'm talking about here in terms of energy, energy return on investment, et cetera? This is the best
0: way to do it. Uh, we we tend to I call it we tend to live in the world of the belief of the Star Trek replicator. That's that's how we get things because right you go on online you get on Amazon you say okay I need to get a new computer and you you click it and then four or five days later you get a knock at the door and there it is. That's the Star Trek replicator. You push a button and poof you get the computer in your in your uh, front door. Well, what what's missing from that, that whole situation is this massive global supply chain and how, we, how it finally got there. And that's forgotten. P- people know about it, but they don't really think about it. And so when you understand, and this is the, the important part, is the energy drives growth. If you don't have energy growth, you don't have GDP growth, you don't have economic growth. Well, According to the IEA, the International Energy Agency, right now, world oil consumption is down, last year, was down nine and a half million barrels. Nine and a half, 10%. You just cut off 10% of the oil spigot. Well, when you go into that store in Walmart and you see all those goodies uh, on the shelf, those are all little pieces of oil, barrels of oil. If you've got 10% less oil, you've got 10% less products. It's very, it's that simple. And so now the uh, the demand and production has come back up somewhat, but it's only at about 92 and a half, 93. We're still 7 million barrels less than we were uh, at the beginning of the pandemic back in February. So, once again, if you if you have 7 million barrels less of consumption, that means you've got less products available. It's not it's not just that the you know that the uh, there's more demand and there's uh, the price of things are going up because there's a problem with the supply chain. We we've got shortages of semiconductors. Matt, when there is 7 million barrels less of oil production, there is 7 million barrels less of products. And the market doesn't think that way. It just doesn't think that way. And so we have to think about that. Now, we're going to see a little bit of rebound, but as oil production, I call it the energy cliff because we got to start realizing, you know, uh, Shell announced two months ago that they've hit peak oil. They're done. ExxonMobil last month just wrote off a third of their oil. So we have to start realizing that we're hitting the point of the, I call it the energy cliff. It's not going to happen overnight, but as time goes on, production is going to have these cliff-like declines. They'll reverse a little bit and they'll fall again. Well, when you have less oil production, less oil consumption, that means you're going to have less products, which means you have less less GDP. So this is we have to tie it together. Anytime any of your followers or, or your YouTube followers, when they go to a store, when you buy something, it's 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 the energy that went into making that thing in all forms and stages. It took that's that's the cost of that thing, is the energy. Even though there's plastic or metal or or, or whatever, it was the energy to, to get it all put together that is the cost or the, the price tag. Of that unit, and so I think going forward with this with this falling energy return on investment, maybe in a follow up interview we could talk more about it. We're just seeing the falling energy return on investment, and it's fallen from the U.S. oil production back in the 30s was producing 100 barrels of oil for the energy cost of one. That's 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 100 to one energy return on investment. By 1970, it was 30 to one. Shale oil is trying to do five to one. We can't go to sh- uh, oil shale, which is even worse than shale oil. That's that's shale. You got to crush. That's two to one. And then all this methane hydrates that we have out there on the uh, around the, uh, the perimeters of all the in the water and off the coasts, all these methane hydrates. It's not even economic to do that. It's less than 1.1 to one and we need this 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 high tech global world we need 12 to 15 to 1 energy return on investment to to sustain everything and and in some parts of the world they're not getting that that's why debt is moving higher so debt is being used now to offset this falling energy return on investment and that's just going to continue to fall and so This is a compounding problem. Not only are we going to have a peak in actual barrels of production, we're going to start seeing the energy return on investment fall even faster. And so these are the the, the dynamics of the market that most people do not understand. And it's going to very negatively impact the global economy and the financial system.
1: So So to sum this up, you, so you, essentially what you're saying is that there's an, an excellent correlation between oil production slash you know use, and you know basically economic activity, that everything in the economy, whether it's it's travel or, or any type of product all the value that goes into that, et cetera, has an element of, of energy that went into it and predominantly obviously in today's day and age. That energy is fossil fuels, oil, uh, um, um, not a whole lot from, from renewables at this point in time. And, and to build on that, what you are not saying is that we're running out of oil. We're running out of oil that's cheap. Cheap oil, not, not in the sense of, of how expensive is a, a barrel of oil, but but how cheap is it to bring it out of the ground relative to to you know how much energy you're basically investing in that. Am I correct in saying that?
0: That's that's precisely correct, because. Uh, and we could talk about this in the next subject matter about are the ancient cultures, the ancient Bronze Age and the Roman Empire. And I, I found some new information that totally blew me away because I talk about the Energy Tooth Fairy. The Energy Tooth Fairy is this idea about the, you know Star Trek replicator that. A lot of the high tech guys, um, the, uh, there is a big debate between a gold analyst and silver and a Bitcoin analyst. And the thing is, these guys don't even talk about energy. So we, you know, we we believe in a, in a uh, jet cartoon Jetsons future. We're going to fly around in cars, and and Elon Musk is going to start sending people up to space. And nobody is looking at the energy that it needs to do all that. And so. There's this I call it this new high tech religion. That's it's kind of like based upon. Would you, we're just going to do all this wonderful high tech stuff, and nobody can. Another day is here,
1: and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos. Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There's the accounting
0: of the energy. And that's the problem is the energy is, 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 is getting into serious trouble. And so when you understand that, when you understand that the energy is in trouble, then uh, the, the global supply chain is going to start to start to really disintegrate, and we 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 see examples in the past. But that's what it comes down to. Human beings need a certain amount of calories to stay alive, and if you if you take in more calories, you're okay. You know, you may gain a little weight, but if you don't have enough energy return on investment, if you're going out as a hunter gatherer and you. You, you're, you're expending two calories of energy for every calorie of food you're going to get. You're going to starve to death. But hunter-gatherers, on average, they expended one calorie of energy. They got 10 calories of food, 10 to 1. That's how it worked. So all things, whether it's a small single celled uh, organism, whether it's a, a, a plant, an animal, a human being, a small business... A, 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 an empire or, or the world. It all is based upon the energy return on investment. And if you don't have that minimum energy, then the, the system falls apart. And that's what it comes down to. And that's what we're starting to really hit now, that level.
1: And so bring it full circle back to, to the uh, exponential growth in debt and, and, and continued unprecedented monetary stimulus that, that, essentially amounts to an attempt to to synthetically kind of paper over that deficit that this that this energy return on in investment is has basically been dropping for a long time now as you said it's at a low number well below the threshold that that we need to to sustain what we have right now and you can try and paper over it with with debt and with stimulus but but we know how that goes and 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 it doesn't work over the long term
0: no and I think once the world begins to understand that we've passed peak production, and that's just one aspect, right? We've passed peak unconventional. Uh, Conventional has been in a plateau. And let me tell you, the countries, these uh, the oil companies and these countries, like in the OPEC, they have invested a lot of money just to keep that flat, a lot of money to keep that or a lot of energy just to keep that from falling. And it it hasn't increased, but that's going to start to fall. What's made up the difference is the unconventional, and most of it was shale oil. Matter of fact, over the last 10 years since the financial crisis, U.S. shale oil production has accounted for 85% of global oil production growth. Well, basically, we can thank the United States for accounting for the global GDP growth over that period. So that's the thing. And, that, and now that's starting to get into a lot of trouble. That's one of the things I focus is, is U.S. shale oil production. That's going to get into serious trouble, and I think we're going to see from today a seventy. Well, from the peak, we're going to see a seventy-five percent decline in shale oil production by two thousand and thirty. And there, there is no 2.0. That's it. Doesn't we when there's nothing else that we're going to bring online to take take to offset decline in shale oil production. So. This is this is the the problem we're going to face. And so when you've got the falling energy return on investment, and then you start actually having declines in actual barrel production, it, it's two dynamics that are going to really. I think we're going to see the Seneca Cliff, and that's I talk. It's the energy cliff. Production goes up slowly and it peaks, but but it it comes down very quickly, and that's how most empires and civilizations civilizations collapsed. They don't collapse the same way they grew, they collapsed very quickly. And unfortunately I see that history is gonna repeat itself.
1: Okay, so there's a lot of people in this space that compare uh, the the collapse of the Western Roman Empire to the present day United States, that there's certain similarities, whether it's in terms of our society, certainly in terms of economics, uh, currency debasement, et cetera. I think all valid comparisons. but, but you, you've already brought it up a couple times here, a comparison to a different age, you know, something that happened, you know, over a thousand years before, you know, the collapse of the, of the Western Roman Empire, uh, the late Bronze Age collapse. Talk, talk some about that and, and kind of the similarities to this discussion that we're having right here. You know,
0: Matt, I, there's not many times in my life I get surprised about information that totally makes me think differently. And it's, it's been an ongoing process. Because I, when I first got into precious metals, I I got into them like everybody else, you know, debt printing, debasement uh, of the currency, uh, you know, uh, protection, insurance against the collapse of the dollar. That's the reason why you get into precious metals. But then I understood the energy situation and how it impacted everything, and so what I knew was about how much energy it took to produce gold and silver. Now, and I kind of thought about the way it was back in the Roman Empire, all the labor. What I did not take into consideration was the massive amount of wood that it took to smelt these metals. And Matt, let me give you just one number. And if you are a silver, especially a gold member at the SRS Rock Report, we, I discussed this because there's a lot of of research and detailed information, but In the Roman Empire, the peak of the Roman Empire, uh, on an annual basis, they were producing uh, about 200 metric tons of silver a year. The Romans were. Uh, And this was about uh, 50 BC to 100 AD. It took 2 million metric tons of wood to to make 400,000 metric tons of charcoal. Because you needed the charcoal to smelt the lead and the silver, wood couldn't do the higher temperatures. So it took two thousand metric tons of, of uh, two million metric tons of wood just to produce a year's worth of silver. Do you know what it is for a fifty-year period? Because that's what it takes for some of these trees to regrow. A hundred, a hundred million metric tons. So the Roman Empire. Just for silver. Let's forget about copper. Let's forget about gold. Let's even forget about iron. And and then they did pottery. And then they actually had glass. All that took wood. Just to produce silver, they cut down 4,000 square miles of wood. So when I understood this, the reason for the collapse of the late Bronze Age, and I'm I'm doing a, a, a huge video on this. Bronze is nine parts copper, one part tin. And the Bronze Age was in the Mediterranean, and there was like six or seven different civilizations, empires. You know, the Roman Empire was one empire, but the late Bronze Age had the Mycenaeans, it had the Hittites, it had it had all these different uh, separate. It was a, it was actually globalization in during the late Bronze Age, which is like about fifteen hundred BC to about 1200 BC. It collapsed within 50 years. We're talking all of these different civilizations all collapsed within 50 years. And the reason for that was because tin was what I call the semiconductor today. To do bronze, you needed one part tin, nine parts copper. Well, in the Mediterranean, there was a lot of copper, but there wasn't much tin. They had to go to different. They actually, had to go to Afghanistan to get the tin. Due to a lot of these different issues, when 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 the the supply chain started to fall apart, they couldn't make bronze. Because the this, the to get the tin, it, it was it, this whole system. There was trade amongst all these different civilizations during the late Bronze Age, and when it started to collapse, the whole thing fell apart. Just like what we saw during the pandemic, when you couldn't get food, certain food items and certain items, which you couldn't get toilet paper, you couldn't get tin. And this is what they needed to make their their chariots, their their bronze swords, their all these different things. And so the issue is what's happening today, man. The problem with the Bronze Age and the Roman Empire, they collapsed. The main factor, according to my my analysis. there's a lot of a lot of additional reasons was the falling energy return on investment of wood. They consumed so much wood they had to go even further places and a lot of the wars like the the, the 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 ancient city of Troy, part of that reason for that battle was wood. not many people understand it. So it was a falling energy return investment of wood today it's a falling energy return testament uh, of oil because you need oil to extract coal you need oil to produce get natural gas wells you need a lot of oil to produce natural gas wells so what when tin became problematic and the supply chain started to break down in the late bronze age it, it started to all fall apart well I see the same thing with the semiconductor because it it's even worse because a semiconductor, needs a supply chain of 50 countries to make it possible. And everything today, as you know, is run by semiconductors. Uh, everything is by computer. And so I think this is the problem we're facing. And I'm more actually mad to conclude, I'm more concerned about the global supply chain than I am about the energy. And up until a few months ago, I was more concerned about the energy, but now I'm very concerned about the global supply chain.
1: So another way of putting this, if if you want to bring back to another analogy of of the hunter gatherers, right? Uh, Okay. There's a lot of reasons for why uh, the world back then, you know, pre-farming only supported a certain population. And a lot of it goes back to energy return on investment. Today's society and today's standard of living is been created on the basis of a certain energy return on investment we're no longer at that level of energy return on investment we've been doing what we can to try and paper over those things or or you know in the case of like you're talking about unconventional oil production shale oil to try and maintain what we have now Uh, but but just like in the late bronze age um, we're expending more and more um, energy to to maintain our current standard of living and and that's entirely unsustainable
0: yeah i think what you know this is what's amazing too when you i've been reading all these different uh research uh we we look at north africa um which is now in tunisia libya and morocco and according to the ancient texts and they've actually done pollen studies that was a a massive green forest uh But you go there now, and it's it, it's it, there's it's like there's some trees, but it's there was elephants and there was your gir- giraffes in North Africa, but that's all gone now. And, and so, what happens also in this? When I look at the Mediterranean, you go you see a lot of the ancient ruins, and when you see these ruins, you're like, God, why would it? Like in Egypt, why would anybody want to live on this island? That's all brown, there's no trees. Well, it wasn't like that when these people started that, in, that that civilization. That island was full of trees. So what it looks like now has to do with human interaction with the environment. It's first deforestation. Then when this deforestation and farming, what happens? All the sediment from rains goes into the rivers, and it actually changes. I mean, the city of Troy was one and a half miles from the coast, one and a half kilometers from the coast back during the 1200 BC. It's now three miles from the coast. And that's because of silting from cutting down all the trees. And, and so it, it, it's, it, it's amazing how much the Mediterranean has changed due to human interaction and so it's not just the falling energy return on investment of wood basically due to the kind of semi-arid nature of the mediterranean different than like the mayans right the mayans cut down a lot of trees to make the mayan civilization but because it was such uh heavily it's such a humid rainforest area it's all been covered, right? I mean, they've been uncovering some of these Mayan uh, these these Mayan civilizations, but it was all covered by forest because they, it had the rainfall. Well, the, the Mediterranean didn't have that kind of rainfall, so it never really regenerated. And so it looks so much different than what it was three, 4,000 years ago. And so part of the problem, and I'll tell you the reason why we don't look like that now, the world doesn't look like that now, is because we got into coal coal saved coal saved the forests of the world because you should see how much wood that they were cutting down in Britain in the 14 and 15 and 16 and 1700s they were decimating their forests and they were running out of wood to to make iron and to make and make glass and do all this smelting but they luckily they they used coal they found coal and then that was a big that was a big uh a commodity a bit, that way, coal was the big thing in the Industrial Revolution was coal, and then after coal started, what happened? We moved into oil and natural gas. So that's been the kind of transitionary period. And so, yes, I don't mean to go on, but I am so fascinating how how much it's always been about the energy. Now. It was a massive amount of wood to to build civilizations and to have gold and silver. Back in the Bronze Age and back in the Roman Empire, and it takes a massive amount of energy today—oil, natural gas, and coal—to have an economy today and to have gold and silver. It's the same thing, and now we're getting in trouble with energy, just like these past civilizations did before.
1: You know, another one that comes to mind because you're talking—we're talking a lot about trees apparently today, and, and wood and whatnot. You know, the the Bible and and, and a lot of other you know historical texts uh reference the you know the cedars of lebanon in fact you know if you look at the lebanese flag it's got a big cedar tree on it they're still there in lebanon but they've been deforested to to a vast extent compared to where they were two thousand three thousand years ago and that was a big part of it i mean it's these huge beautiful trees it's no wonder they they were so prized for for construction um they they look like they fit in and you know somewhere on the, on the coast of california and some of those forests or northern minnesota uh maybe not lebanon because we kind of all this picture of what lebanon and what you know the middle east looks like and, and certainly i'm sure lebanon isn't just a big you know arid wasteland at all but the cedar trees they're they're just not there nearly to the extent that they that i'm sure they were you know 4,000 years ago
0: you know i, I watched this interesting uh, video um maybe i'll send you the link but China has had massive problems with, with sandstorms. It comes right into Be- Beijing, and they've been having serious issues. There's this large area up in northwest China, and they've been working on it for 20 years. It, it turned into a desert, but it, it, kind of like what Egypt looks like. Let me, let me tell you, when you see those pyramids, and you, I'm thinking, why would anybody build pyramids in this desolate desert? I don't think it was a desert desert back then. And a perfect example is what the ancient Chinese people did to this 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 area. That's the size of the Netherlands, and it's it's mountainous. It's not flat. And you should see a video of them before and after. They they totally denuded it. And you know what's the worst thing? Once you cut trees down, is you put goats. Goats will denude any, any environment. And then, and you know, that's what a lot is in the middle is in the Mediterranean is goats. And so when you look what's happened, you should see how green the trees have come back. And then when the trees come back and the, and the shrubs come back and the, and the grasslands come back, you have water that used to come down that makes mud, mud, mud rivers or mud creeks. Now, now the water is clear and we're, we're seeing in other instances in Africa that in small areas, they're redoing this. They're actually trying to reforest and revegetate what used to be there. But now when you, you know, a lot of the poverty that you see in North Africa and these different places in, in the Mediterranean is, is due to we've destroyed that environment. And and the climate really hasn't changed in, in, since 3,000 years ago. Uh, you know, uh, up until, let's say, 34 years ago, it really hadn't changed that much. And it was all it was done by, unfortunately, uh, when you're in a semi-arid climate, when you start cutting trees and, and deforesting and it, it can't repair itself like a tropical area can. And that's yeah. um, that's the problem.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm reading this article right here. This is per the uh, Journal of Climate um, the, the Sahara Desert, their estimate has grown by ten percent in the last century alone. You know, and, and I'm sure some of that they attribute to, you know, climate change and whatnot. But I'm sure a, a, a large amount of it has been um, increased uh, civilization, basically deforestation and an increased, you know, development that, like you said, an aired climate you know allows it to to uh, to basically increase in size, which has become a huge problem. I'm sure.
0: And Matt, think about this too when we look at a tree we see a tree and it, we okay back in the late bronze age or the bronze age bronze age went from 3000 so BC to about they talk about 11 1200 800 BC that's the bronze age and then the iron age came and the iron age came because iron was easier to access uh, tin was hard to get so they said well you know let's just use iron it's e- it's e- easier the here's the thing when you cut down uh well, when you cut down 10,000 metric tons of wood to, to make charcoal, to produce silver or copper, smelt it. You have to smelt it. Half of that weight is water or more. So when you have all these forests, they, they're they like a battery of water. The trees, the stems, the leaves, and then underground. So when, when there's somewhat drought, the you, you get they they can hold up more water or they can release a little bit more water but when you cut the trees down you're actually changing the microclimate especially when you're cutting down 4000 square miles of trees and and, and people don't a lot of people don't get that so you, there was all this water held in these trees and the trees were being used to moderate the microclimate the local climate so when you cut them down at first no one noticed But then when you're cutting down 50 or 75 percent of the trees on Cyprus, which was, you know, Cyprus, the word Cyprus comes from uh, Cypret, which is copper. And during the Bronze Age, Cyprus was a big supplier of copper. But when you cut down a lot of trees on Cyprus, the droughts came. And so people say, well, part of the reason for the decline of the late Bronze Age, the drought. Well, it, it wasn't because, you know, the good Lord or Mother Nature said, well, you know, it's time for a drought humans had some part in making out drought or making it worse by cutting down so many trees and changing the microclimate and so it, these are kind of new realizations for me that I never thought about before you think I would but I was kind of the energy tooth fairy in in these ancient civilizations I just never put two and two together and that so that's how important it is it's always been the energy net and the metals have been the store of this energy equivalent value. And right now it's fiat money and it's stocks and bonds and real estate. Well, that's fine when oil and energy production goes up. But when it f- starts to fall, all the value of, of currencies and, and, and stocks bonds and real estate, they're going to get into real trouble. So what are the, the the what's the what's left is the real store of value, gold and silver. Because that energy that went into it is it's like a battery of energy value so uh, that's why i'm so uh, that's why i believe in the precious metals due to now more than anything the energy situation we're going to be facing
1: essentially you know just like with silver and gold a fiat currency like the dollar represents a certain amount of, of value a certain amount of energy uh, because you look at the labor that went into to earning that, or or the value that was added to a product that that, that was then then exchanged basically for that for that fiat currency. The difference is, is that uh, silver or or gold that existed in the late Bronze era, or the uh, during during the time of the Roman Empire, um, or or during the Middle Ages, or or a hundred years ago, that hasn't been debased yeah, currency is debased on a daily
0: basis. yeah, well, of course you know that the Roman denarius was debased. And do you know why the Roman denarius yeah. was do you know why the Roman Denarius debased the silver in the in the in the in the, the coin? It's not just because they said, well, we're, we're just going to debase it because we feel like it because they had peak silver production. So if you start running out of if you can't grow your silver production, and the, the economy kind of grows, or you have to maintain more of it, right? And you, you have to pay the the, the, the Roman army. You have, you've got to pay them more to maintain or defend it. When the silver production starts to fall, you've got to debase your currency. Well, why did the silver production fall? And from the historic documents I've read, it's not that they ran out of silver. They ran out of wood. Or let's put it this way. They did not run out of wood. They ran out of wood that was easily accessible because that's the reason why they went into Germania. Because up in in the northern, they they basically went through and wiped out a lot of the wood in Italy and Sicily and in in Greece, in the Greece area, in the Mediterranean. They wiped out a lot of that wood. So where was the wood was up in, in the northern part of Germany or northern part of Europe, which was the Germanic area. And so they had to face those. The, the I, you call the barbarians, the and cow. so that's the they were trying to access that wood to continue business as usual, and they so, they they, but, they couldn't they couldn't and so that's that's the that's the peak and decline of the Roman Empire was basically the falling energy return on investment of wood.
1: So replace wood with oil. It's not that we're running out of oil. It's that it's. Cheap oil, easy to extract oil, uh, is 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 a thing of the past.
0: Yes, and and we have to also remember we've got this massive global supply chain, right? And it's not just the supply chain; it's the airport. We built the airport. We built the planes. Well, after you build that airport and you build those planes, the FedEx that that goes to uh, or the boats, the ships. You build a ship. You you have to maintain that ship, or you have to replace it. So as the, as the infrastructure of the global supply chain gets bigger and bigger and bigger, especially in China, you have to maintain that. You can't maintain that when energy production falls. That, and that's how it starts to fall apart. And so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the issue. And also the other issue is there's the falling energy return on investment of, of food production. And when you first cut down a forest on, a, let's say, uh, the lowlands, you've got very nice topsoil. Well, you've got the sun energy, right? Photosynthesis that makes the food, but you need the good topsoil, the bacteria to make the food, to produce the food. Well, when you deplete that, and this is what the Western cultures started to happen in the late 1800s, we started depleting our farmlands in the early 1900s. Well, what did the Germans do? They came up with NPK, and that's what we're using, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus uh, on, the, on the soils to continue business as usual, along with a lot of other stuff, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, all those things. And so now the soils are so poor, they, they cannot produce food without injecting a whole bunch of petroleum-based stuff to continue... Food production. So this is another issue that's that's a part of the wood and the oil energy is the food production that's going to get into serious trouble because we have depleted so much of the top soils that they can only work if you dump millions of barrels of petroleum products every year into the soils. That's only where they work.
1: You know, I, actually, I think it was just yesterday I learned. You you know who one of the one of the largest uh, not one of the largest exporter of of uh, phosphates for the use of kind of farming restoring farmland or, or keeping the soil in 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 good condition you happen to have a guess at who's that who that is? It's uh Morocco, you know, who we were just talking about. You know, uh, but,
0: I I did you know I I did not know it was Morocco,
1: but you know again we're talking about farmland. In the United States, or China, or India, or where, you know that that requires this massive amount of energy, this massive supply chain that doesn't just start with with uh, fertilizer from from the cattle farm down the road. We're talking about phosphates all the way from Morocco.
0: Yeah, and that, that's a, that's a great point, Matt. And when you start thinking that way, you see. I think uh, well, we, we're hearing the shutdowns of the uh, the motor plants because they can't get the chips. To, to do this. Well, that's probably just, you know, there's other aspects that are happening too. And I've also heard, I went to my local, my local lawn and uh, lawnmower gas uh, guy that he, he takes care of repairing, you know, lawnmower equipment. He says that it's impossible for him to get electronic parts for, for lawnmowers and, and weed whackers and things like that. So it's just not the chips. There's a lot of problems, and this is just the beginning. You see, the the idea of plenty. When you go into uh, Walmart and you see all that stuff, or you go to McDonald's and you could, they give you your food in a nice, brand new paper bag, and you grab a handful of napkins. No one for years. We just thought this is like the Star Trek replicator. I walk in, is all this stuff for the eye can see. Well, that that's going to end. And wait till we have to start dealing with what they do in in these third world countries. When you go to some of these third world countries, is you see, the car has got a different door, a different trunk color. And they're just they're just trying to make it work and they're doing the best they can. Well, that's a third world country. Wait till it starts happening in in Europe and the United States. And that's coming.
1: Oh, yeah. I, uh, you know, you think of again if you think of everything in terms of energy, and hey, I'm guilty of this too. But the amount of trash that's thrown away, plastic packaging, paper, uh, whatever, that that all represents a certain amount of energy. And of course, past generations, you know, if you look at back at like the uh, the, the Great Depression era, they were certainly better at avoiding that, and and they certainly didn't have you know the plastics and whatnot uh, um, to to throw away, but they had certainly the choice there. And you know, just today, I, I, I think today or yesterday, I saw you know, post about back in, I think this was like 1939, you know, still kind of the tail end of that, you know, right before World War II, uh, there were, uh, um, um, what were they, basically mills in the Midwest um, that would uh, throw wheat basically into to bags, right, to, to ship out to, to you know, the end consumer. And they learned that a lot of these families, because of the poverty they were put in, they would. Take those sacks, which were a good fabric, and basically create clothing out of them. so they started patterning them, right, putting flowers and whatnot on them, so that they didn't just have you know the dingy uh, you know tan or white color or whatever you know to, to add some value for for these people that were were really hurting uh, we we don't We don't do that these days
0: <laughs> no and, and unfortunately, we're trained not to. And that it's a throwaway. It's a throw. You know, I'm guilty of it too. We're we a throwaway country, and that's because we have this idea of this. You know, this. You walk into any supermarket, and you walk into any, any large like uh, like Walmart. It, it, there's all this stuff, and but that's a, it's an illusion, and so I, I I don't know when we start to get into trouble. We're I no Well, I do know we are in trouble, and when you see. When you see almost ten percent of oil demand fall last year, and that now that was man, that was a managed fall, right? We shut down the economies for the pandemic, but now, but well, here's what's interesting. I did an article, Matt. Global car sales fell in 2019, in, in, even in China. Why? Why did they fall? Global car. I don't have the number. I I, I do all these these charts and numbers, and I, I can't remember them all. But global auto sales fell in 2019 they really fell in 2020 but the thing is why were they falling in 19 there was there was no pandemic so i think we were starting to see problems in 2019 and remember the fed got the problem with the uh had to do the the reverse repos in september Mm -hmm. i think you see i think behind the scenes things are i call it this it's disintegrating it's like it's chewing the, the, in, the insides of the economy from within. And we can't really see it because when you turn on the TV, they not going to hit a new high. Here. And it's like, that's all you see. But what's happening, people are losing their jobs. Uh, small businesses is, is still a disaster. And so when you see all that, when you, that's, that's still happening. And so I think the, the Americans are really going to be surprised on the mentality now of what it will be next year in 2023 i think we're going to have a lot of hardships and that it's just going to it's just going to get worse unfortunately and that's why
1: yeah, I, I, I think i think it's something we'll see play out on um uh, the fomc uh, cnbc and in each household this realization that wait a second you know it's going to be like similar to the financial crisis and post-financial crisis all over again Wait a second. How come things aren't back to normal yet? How come these you know these green shoots that, that are being talked about? How come some of these numbers seem to conflict with that? And, and I think that's going uh, to be that's going to be that's going to be a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. I think most will will deny it. Uh, I'm sure. Um, but Steve, I, I I think we'll have to we'll have to call yes. it <laughs> We, we've gone all over the place in this conversation but it's been great um I, I want to first of all say thank you for for such a high quality in-depth interview and 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 maybe if anything then the two big takeaways from this is is not only a discussion on silver but that this is so much bigger than just silver and gold um and 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 second of all i i just wanted to ask you uh where can where can my listeners find you and and tell them a little bit about what you got going on over at the srs rocco report
0: yeah, Matt. Thanks a lot. Yes, I'm. I'm glad we could go into all these discussions because I, uh, I think it's very important, and I'll, I'll say that in the conclusion. But if you go to the SRS Rock Report, I've got uh, we, we put out pu- public articles, free member articles, and we but we put a lot of the good information for the silver and gold members, especially the gold members. And uh, there's a lot of detail. It takes a lot of research to do this this work. That's why we you know we've got the subscription service. So you're more than welcome to check that out. To understand more of the details, and I still do one or two videos on YouTube uh, to just to get to the public to share some of this information and to get more people to check out the website too. But it, this is important. Silver and gold, to me, are are the are is the best options to protect your your value, your your wealth in the future. I yeah. think we I think we're going to go we're going to go from building wealth, Matt to protecting it. And we haven't we haven't even got anywhere near there yet. That's the transition due to the energy. So when people when the silver investor understands that he has to eat, he needs energy, he has to buy things, he's got to run a household. It's important to understand silver and gold, but it's important to understand all these other energy dynamics that are almost more important
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I want to say real quick for my listeners as well um, about his website. You know, there is a membership, but I can say that if you want a primer for what's behind that um, with with the silver, with the gold membership, there's free content on there as well. All you have to do is sign up. In fact, right now on my my screen, I have an article that that was posted earlier this week titled Total World Silver Investment Continues to Put a Huge Squeeze on Global Mine Supply. And it's great content. You know, it's 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 a ton of the stuff we discussed today. A lot of great numbers, great charts, and and that's that's all free if if you want a primer for for what else uh, is is um, on that website as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I think now with the re- revision in two thousand twenty, uh, total silver investment was about seventy percent, uh, sixty eight seventy percent of mine supply. Never ne- never been there before. Never yeah,
1: never. Say- that, that, that's I, I i mean it's to 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 the casual listener that that okay what does that number even mean but but to you and i that is an astounding number
0: yeah because normally it's uh well let's say before the financial crisis it was five or ten percent mm-hmm. now and now it went to 70 well you know the first quarter this year i estimate it's about 65 70 percent again mm-hmm. that's how much how much uh, ETF and so physical civil demand there has been in the first quarter. So it continues to be strong. And we can't have too many quarters or too many years like that. Something's going to give. And it's usually what's going to give is the price. And that's on the upward, on the upside.
1: Well, we're just starting quarter two right now. And and I'm thinking I'll probably having to have you back on, you know, maybe start a quarter three to, to get an update on all this. Because I, I, I tend to think that this, this unsustainable path that we're on in so many different ways that that somehow this isn't going to change anytime soon.
0: I totally agree. And thanks for your time, Matt. Always a pleasure. And I think uh, uh, I will uh, put your the video or the the interview up on the website when it comes up for the public.
1: I appreciate that. Thanks, Steve. We uh, have a great day.
0: You too. Thank you.